All right, we'll, we'll open up with prayer as we take our seats. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together to learn your word and to worship you. I do pray uh, as the word goes out that we'd have clarity and that we'd remember your great promises, that we are aliens and sojourners in this land, and we do long for the new creation and the new heavens, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And we pray, Heavenly Father, you use these promises to help us persevere until the last day. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, if you recall, if you were here last week, we had left off with the idea of the new creation. And so we had left the idea of judgment that was at the white throne judgment that was in the end of Revelation chapter 20. Well, in Revelation 21, John turns to the new subject of the new creation. And we talked about in the new creation how even the sea would no longer exist. And one thing we pointed out is that proves that there can no longer be rightly held the amillennial position because in the amillennial position, they would have to have a time period in the eternal states where the sea is going to be reinvigorated, the Dead Sea, because we looked at Ezekiel 47. So that really, in other words, it really supports premillennialism because in premillennialism, you have a time period in which you can have no more sea, which is the eternal states, but you can also have a time period, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, in which the sea is reinvigorated. We also looked at different evils that will no longer exist in the new creation. Two of them have to do with creation itself. Notice on the screen, in red, both the sea and the night. And we talked about how the sea and the night is not inherently, neither of them are inherently evil, but they are at, in, they are at variance with what the new creation is about. For example, the sea often had to do with separation of people. It had to do with something that mankind had to overcome. It was a symbol of the abyss. The same thing goes with the night. And so we see in some sense this back in Genesis 1-2 that God overcame the waters and he overcame the darkness there. Well, he does so in the new creation to the degree where they no longer exist. So again, not that the sea or the night were evil in and of themselves, but they are at variance with what the new creation is about. There'll be no more night and there'll be no more sea. So we talked about that. Now, we come here in the next verse in Revelation 21-2 to really looking at the pinnacle of the new creation, which is a city, the new Jerusalem. Listen to how John describes it. Notice he begins this vision again with an and I saw. So when you, say, when you see in the text, and I saw, you know John is adding to his vision. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice you have a holy city. In other words, God did not create as the pinnacle of his new creation a new wilderness. And I think that's important to think about, that God creates for his people a city. The wilderness is something that the people of God are not to be associated with. Not that it's sinful, but we're called to, remember in Hebrews 10, 25, we're not to forsake what? The assembling together. Okay, now I say that because what do the pagans love to do? They think salvation's found in the pristineness of the wilderness. Okay, but let's go back to Leviticus 16. Remember in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, you have two goats. Where was the scapegoat led? After the sins were confessed upon, it was led into the wilderness. 
So the wilderness isn't something for the people of God. And I'm not saying it's wrong to go there. That's not the point. The point is we're called to be a people who are dedicated to one another. And in this holy city, we're going to have perfect relationships, as we will see, with God and amongst each other as well. Now, the other thing is notice the term holy. Holy means set apart, hagios. It's the same term that's used to describe us. We are set apart for God. This city is as well. And I want you to realize that even the old Jerusalem was always considered a holy city. It was always set apart for God. In fact, let me say to you Isaiah 52, 7, where God says, Awake, awake, clothe yourselves in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come unto you. Now, that idea then has to do with even the old Jerusalem being set apart for God. But this new Jerusalem is going to be far greater Sin will be eradicated. No longer will people be sinning against their God. And so it truly is set apart. Now, notice here, it's also not only just any holy city, it's the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is the promise that is really the pinnacle of all the promises that God gives his people. Okay, so yes, we have the promise of forgiveness of sins and resurrection. But our resurrection life, because we've been forgiven, is going to occur in the new creation, and specifically this new Jerusalem. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 3.12. I want to do a review of a promise that was given to the church at Philadelphia, and you will see that it incorporates life in the new Jerusalem for those who overcome. And by the way, at the end of this message, I'll be talking about those who overcome are those who believe in Christ. So we'll talk about that later. Just pulled my cup thing out here so notice here revelation three twelve. it says he who overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god and he will not go out from it anymore and i will write on him the name of my god and the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my god and my new name so there you see this promise that those who overcome are going to be really partakers of this new Jerusalem. Also, I want you to see that this new Jerusalem, this beautiful city, is adorned. Notice the simile. Let me pull up my pointer. You have a simile. It's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Normally, if you see an as in the Bible, it's typically a simile. So it's not a bride, but it's made like a bride. It's so beautiful. The term adorned there, the verb cosmeto, You can hear the root there where we get our term cosmetics. So the new Jerusalem is being adorned beautifully like a bride for God and the people of God. Now, the reason I point that out is we are also, I think, intended to see a great contrast between the city of Satan. Remember, Satan had a city, the beast, which was Babylon. And Babylon also was adorned for the pagans. So the new Jerusalem is adorned for us. Well, the pagans had themselves a city, which was in fact Babylon. We see this in Revelation 17, 4. Remember the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Well, notice she was adorned. So you have the adorning of Satan's city and you have the adorning of 
God's city. And of course, it's God's city that's going to last forever. Yes, Eric. I just, I have a question. Uh, Many years ago, when I was first trying to understand the book of Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I worked on it for a long time, like a lot of people. And I took a class, and the, the, uh, one of the things that, that stuck with me, the person teaching it said that what Satan does is that he takes that which is the most beautiful that God has created. He takes, you, you name it, whether it's marriage or, or yeah. you know, he takes, he takes that which is the most beautiful, and he twists it right. and turns it into something Ugly and awful and, and counterfeit. And, well and, all, and I was thinking all these years, I'm thinking, well, where, where's the support for that in the Bible? And I guess yeah. it's all over the place probably, but this would be one example. Well said, absolutely. Yeah. So you see in the book of Revelation, there's a false trinity. You have Satan, you have the beast, and you have the false prophet. They have their false city, Babylon. You're right, there's a complete distortion of everything that is good. Um, Think about Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet wails about this where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. On the way home from this family get-together that we had yesterday, I'm driving on 94 and there's a big um, billboard sign. It says, Planned Parenthood, here for good. And, of course, there's a double entendre. Good meaning they're here for the duration, but also they're doing good. So the the stabbing of innocent babies in the back of the skull is good. We just didn't even know that. Okay, so again, it's this inversion of what is truly good and for that which is evil. And that's exactly what happens in spades, really, uh, to the nth degree in the 70th week of Daniel. Absolutely well said. Now, one thing I want to point out, just because I don't want us to be confused, notice in Revelation 17, 4, you see that the woman was adorned. You think, well, wait a minute, what about the woman? Well, let's remind ourselves that the woman was the city Babylon. In fact, Cladoris, I think you had that passage. So, Eric, if we could just bring the microphone to Cladoris. She had, I believe it was Revelation 17, 18. So she's just going to read that, and we'll see that the woman is indeed the city Babylon. And the woman you saw is the great city that has an empire over the kings of the earth. Aha, very good. So do you remember we have from John himself, who's inspired by the Spirit to write this scripture, that indeed this woman was Babylon the city. So that's why I'm saying it's a counterfeit city. Now, remember, one of the big points in Isaiah, if you don't understand this, it's really hard to understand the book of Isaiah because it's a central thesis of it that there's a contrast between two cities then. For example, in Isaiah 24, 16, Babylon is referred to as the city of chaos. Now, there was a real Babylon that existed, of course, in Isaiah's day, but it was a mere foreshadowing of the ultimate Babylon that would occur in the future day of the Lord. So remember, part of prophecy in the Old Testament is that God gives us down payments, foreshadowings of what will ultimately occur still yet in the future day of the Lord. So God in his day even shattered the near-term Babylon. And remember in Isaiah 26, it's verse 1, God throws down the city of chaos, which was listed in Isaiah 24.10, and he establishes the new Jerusalem, the strong city, where his people will dwell one day safely forever. So this idea of the contrast between two cities is a theme that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So if you think about it, the pagans today... When all of their endeavors, with all of their false religion, with all of their politics, they're really attempting to build the city of man, Babylon. 
Now, Babylon is going to be built not by God's grace, but again, by man. Well, God contrasts that with the New Jerusalem. Notice the New Jerusalem isn't something that you and I build. It comes down. It's been adorned. The passive implies a divine passive. Who's done it? It wasn't man's works. It wasn't through the Hegelian or Marxist dialectic that it comes about. It's God's work alone that is going to bring this glorious new city. That's what's so exciting. Now, the proof of that is also seen. Notice the underline in Revelation 21.2. Notice it's coming down. Okay, katabino in the Greek. So it's descending from heaven and I think that shows us that, yes, we have a new creation, but in this particular portion of the new creation, that is the new Jerusalem, I believe it has existed forever in the sense that God has created it. In fact, I would say it is synonymous with what we read about in John 14. Remember when Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, And I will come again to take you to be where I am, so that where I am, there you may be also. So remember that John 14 passage, Jesus cannot be referring to something on the earth because he's coming to take his people to be where he is or where he's going, which is heaven. And where we are is going to be where he is. So I think certainly he's referring to the new Jerusalem, which he's preparing for us. So I think this idea of the new Jerusalem, it's new in the sense, think of an analogy this way. Let's say you buy a new bike for your little boy. We did that one day for Will. But let's say you have it because you get a good deal on it somewhere and you, get it, you have it in your closet for six months, but you wait for his birthday. It's really not new in the sense that it was just created. It's not new in the sense that it's never been in your house. It's been in your house for six, year, or six months, but it's new to him. And I think in the same way, this new Jerusalem, God has been working on it And he's built it from long ago. And I'll be showing you evidence of this as we go. But for the people of God, it's glorious and it's new. Like the new bike that you get that your parents have had stored away that uh, you just can't imagine how glorious it is. That's how beautiful it's going to be. Now, let me... Yeah, <laughs> by the way, Will, yeah, exactly. They're not in the closet anyway, yeah. <laughs> I was throwing them off. That was a whole ruse. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah, so what I want to do now is I want to show you some evidence that, in fact, this new Jerusalem has existed in heaven. And, in fact, it is the glorious promise that even the patriarchs look forward to. I have a statement I wanted to read to you that I wrote I just wrote this. I said, the new Jerusalem is depicted in Scripture as the pinnacle of all our hopes, along with forgiveness of sins, resurrection life. Life with God and our fellow saints in the new Jerusalem dominates the hope of believers in every age. I want to show you that. Because when we see the new Jerusalem coming down, I want you to get the idea that Abraham was looking for this city. This isn't some Johnny-come-lately new idea that the New Testament writers concocted. It has been the pinnacle of all the promises for all of God's people for all time. So let's show some evidence of that. If, in fact, this new Jerusalem has existed and is coming down, we should expect passages that would support its prior existence. Well, I think we do. Here we have Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. Remember in Hebrews 11, you have what I like to refer to as the Hall of Fame of Faith. You have various saints that are listed, and this shows why they're able to persevere in faith is because they truly believe God's promises. That's what Bob has been teaching this church 
for years. Believe the promises of God. Brian shared that with his, his new son-in-law and his daughter at their wedding. Believe the promises of God. That's what it's all about. So that's Hebrews 11. So here it's talking about Abraham. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, does everyone notice there in red, Abraham wasn't looking just for a land. He was looking for this new Jerusalem. I think that that's ultimately what he was looking for. Now, the other thing I want to point out in this text is very interesting. Notice in the box where it says he lived as an alien, that's actually one verb in the Greek. And it's paro, paroikeo. Paroikeo. Say it five times. You can use it at dinner parties. Paroikeo has to do with living as a sojourner, living as someone who doesn't really belong. Now, think about Abraham's life. Abraham never owned a single square foot of Israel until his wife dies. And according to Genesis 23, he buys this little cave, this plot of land at Machpelah in order to bury Sarah. But that's the only land he ever owned, was just a place to bury his wife. And so that's why the scriptures describe him as an alien, even the promised land. In fact, we have a couple of other passages that I'd like read. Um, If we could start with... um, Let's start with Craig, and then we'll go to Ryan. Craig's going to read from 1 Peter 1.17. Now, before you read it, Craig, the reason I'm having this read is I want you to see this idea throughout the scriptures that all Christians are also seen to be aliens or sojourners like Abraham. In other words, we don't really belong here. Yes, we're here. We're here for a time. But it's not like this is our ultimate residence. And we see this idea all through the scriptures. You're going to hear this in 1 Peter 1.17. Go ahead, Craig. 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Notice that phrase, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay. That stay, that's the noun form of the verb that you see in the box here. He lived as an alien. So in 1 Peter 1.17, we're being depicted then as what? Aliens. We don't really belong here. We're just sojourners. By the way, I don't like using the sojourner term simply because there's a communist organization, Jim Wallace. How many have heard of the sojourners? Yeah, they're a bunch of commies, but don't let them wreck a good term, okay? Don't let them wreck a good term. We really are sojourners, not in the sense of, um, you know, all holding hands and trying to become one with the world, but in the sense biblically that we're looking for this glorious new jerusalem now i want you to see in stephen's speech in acts 7 you'll see him also describe the israelites um, more particular the patriarchs as aliens so here i'll have ryan read it's it's acts 7 6 and he's talking about genesis 15 and how the so the uh excuse me the patriarchs were also sojourners go ahead ryan and god spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Excellent. So that citation that he cites there, that is um, Ryan citing Acts 7, 6, but Stephen in his speech was citing from Genesis 15, 13. So I'm just showing you this, 
that the biblical authors really see believers as sojourners, as aliens who don't really belong here. Where do we really belong? Well, ultimately, it's our heavenly city. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's ultimately our home. In fact, let me cite another passage from Hebrews 13, 14. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a lasting city, but are seeking the city which is to come. That's our city, the city that is in heaven, where Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, so that where I am, there you may be also. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying that there's not going to be a literal rain on the earth. There will be. I'm saying that this earth as we know it, ultimately, is going to be regenerated, and it's going to be our stomping grounds too. So your stomping grounds as a believer is going to be a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. That's how glorious it is. Now, one other passage I want to show you on this slide about how prevalent this idea of this new Jerusalem is, is it's subtle, but it's in Romans eleven twenty six. Now, why is this passage so important? Because here Paul explicitly states there is a future for Israel. That one day they will be saved. They will come to messianic salvation. We know that this happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So here Paul's talking about this. Romans eleven twenty six. He says, and so Israel will be saved. Excuse me. All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now here Paul, notice in all the caps, that's Isaiah 59, 20. But what's curious is Paul substitutes Isaiah 59, 20, which says that the, the deliverer will come to Zion. But notice in the box, he substitutes that he will come from Zion. Now, from this discussion, some scholars have concluded that Paul just gets to play fast and loose with the Old Testament text. Why? Well, because he's an apostle. Well, not so fast. I think Paul is using the Old Testament passage, Isaiah 59, 20, which says that the deliverer would come to Zion. In his first advent, the Messiah does come to Zion. He comes to Jerusalem. But here, Paul is making a play on that. You see, Paul's reflecting on the idea that the ultimate Zion is actually in heaven. And so when Israel is going to be saved is when the Messiah breaks, from, breaks forth from the clouds as he returns from the heavenly Zion. That's what he's saying. So he's just doing a little play on words with the text. When is Israel going to be saved? Well, when Jesus breaks through the clouds, when he comes from the heavenly Zion. That would be the idea. Yes, Peter. Eric, just a sidebar. Uh, Can you render a definition of all Israel briefly? Yeah, very good. I think all Israel has to be, in this context, national ethnic Israel. One of the reasons to to be very succinct about it is because two verses later, in verse 28 of Romans 11, it says, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. In other words, Paul is saying that to believers. Now, some Reformed theologians, let me just get my pointer out, they would claim that all Israel is a reference to every believer, Jew and Gentile. Okay, in other words, it's the church. They would spiritualize it. Why? Because they don't believe that there's going to be a future restoration of the nation of Israel. Here's the problem with that. If we're going to say that all Israel here is the church, well, two verses later, the church would have to be an enemy of the gospel. 
Well, the church are those who believe in the gospel. You can't believe in the gospel and be an enemy of the gospel at the same time in the same relationship. Well, who were enemies of the gospel when Paul wrote this? Well, the vast majority of ethnic Israelites. So when he says that all Israel will be saved, certainly, in fact, nine times earlier in the book of Romans, Paul had used the phrase all, or not all, but Israel, referring to national ethnic Israel. So what Paul sees here in this text, what he's teaching us is that there's going to be a day where in mass the entire nation will come to messianic salvation. It's not that they're going to be saved because, well, they're Jews and they're in, they try their hardest with the law. No, they're only going to be in the kingdom when they come to repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen in mass as a nation in the 70th week of Daniel. A great cross-reference to that is found in Zechariah 12.10, where it says, They will look upon me whom they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And that's the day of national repentance where Israel realizes, look, the one we pierced, this Messiah, he really was our Messiah. He wasn't a scourge uh, against us. He wasn't some evil man. No, he really was who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah. So they will come in faith. In fact, I think Revelation 11 also gives evidence of that, that they are coming to faith at, uh, at the beginning of the last th- the three and a half years of the book of Daniel. So that's what that's all about. Thank you. Great question. I'm glad you point that out. It, um, you know, sometimes we blow by these things. We think, well, everybody knows that. But you're right. That's, that's a very good thing to point out. Yes, Eric. I think this actually emphasizes what you're saying, too. In other words, it's not all Jews of all time. Yes. They're, they're not point. all destined for salvation. That's what this, this does not mean that. Well right? said. Just yes. to nail it down. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, let's give another qualifier. Very good. When it says all Israel, it doesn't mean if you were born an Israelite into this world, you're born a Jew. It doesn't mean you're automatically saved. This is talking about a specific time in history where the nation and mass as a whole will by and large come to faith in the Messiah. Now, does that mean there won't be one guy sitting in Gilead who doesn't trust? I'm not saying that. I'm saying by and large the whole nation will come to faith. Okay? When we say, when we use the phrase everyone was Everyone watched the Super Bowl. We're not claiming every single solitary person. We're claiming a large amount. In the same way, the overwhelming number of Jews now don't believe in Messiah. In this day, the overwhelming number will. It'll be the very, very minority report, I would think, that don't believe. Okay, so that's the idea. Very good. Yeah, so if you're born a Jew, it doesn't save you. Paul had claimed that in uh, Romans 2. What matters is faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Very good. Okay, so, all right, now, that's another indication, though, very subtle, Romans eleven twenty six, that this Zion exists now. There really is a heavenly Jerusalem that exists, and therefore we can understand why it's depicted in Revelation as coming down. Okay, let me give you some more evidence of this. Here's another one in Galatians 4, 25 through 26. Now, before I read this, remember, this is where Paul is contrasting. He's using an analogy. And the analogy is that Hagar is being contrasted with Sarah. Hagar represents, she had Ishmael, the son of slavery. Sarah had Isaac, the son of freedom. Right? Well, if you follow the contrast, Hagar, her birth was according to the flesh. In other words, she had to work with Abraham to have the child. It wasn't miraculous, but Abraham having a son through Sarah was miraculous. That was by grace. So Isaac's birth 
was by, by grace. Okay? Uh, Hagar represents the old covenant in this section. In this section of scripture, Sarah represents the new covenant. Hagar represents Mount Zion, the old earthly Jerusalem at the time, which represented those who are in opposition to faith in Christ. Whereas Sarah represents the heavenly Zion and the idea that you have true freedom through faith in Christ alone. So that's why Paul is doing this contrast. Now, I'm just setting that stage so I, I don't have to read everything so you understand what's being talked about here. Galatians 4, 25 to 26, Paul says, Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For, here's explanatory, an explanatory for, he says, For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And again, an implication of this text, again, is that this Jerusalem above really does exist. Again, giving further credence that the new Jerusalem is something that has existed for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But for us, it's going to be brand new. That's why it comes down. Again, that helps us make sense, I think, of John 14, 1 through 3. Let me show you one more here. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. Notice it says, um, by the way, before I uh, read this, I want someone to read, if you could, Hebrews 12, 18. Could somebody read Hebrews 12, 18? Um, Eric, would you mind reading it uh, with your mic there? I'll, I'll try to get it here okay, real quick. Okay, sure. We'll give you Hebrews. some time. I'll, we'll as you're turning there, I'll, I'll explain what the whole point here is. I want you to see there's a contrast from Hebrews 12, 18 to what I'm going to be reading you. Hebrews 12, 18 is about coming to the earthly mountains. Uh, Sinai, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, when you came to faith in Christ, you didn't come to Sinai, but you came to the new heavenly Jerusalem. That's the idea. So there's this contrast between what the people under the old covenant had, which was lesser than what we have, which is greater than. So you're going to see this contrast. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this is Hebrews 12, verse 18, right? Yes. Okay. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Very good. So what is he describing? He's describing what it was to be an old covenant member of Israel. That was their experience. So now, notice the contrast. You have a strong contrastive conjunction. Um, there's two different conjunctions. Sometimes you'll have a day. It's a, like a D-E in our English. And that just means kind of an and, but it's sometimes rendered but. But you also have a conjunction that's Allah. And that's a strong, contrastive conjunction. Well, that's what we have here. Showing us that there's a contrast between what the Old Testament saints had, their experience, and what we have by faith in Christ. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. That's our access by faith. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Does that mean the moment you believed you were somehow transported there? No, but your reservation is there. Positionally, you are considered there. Just as Bob taught us about in Ephesians 1, that you and I were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and we were seated with him in the heavenly places. We haven't experienced that yet physically, but it's a, we're as good as being there. Our reservation is there. That's the same point here. He says, you've, again, come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Stop there for a moment. Notice we're called the firstborn. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And he sacrifices himself so that you and I can become the firstborn. What's the firstborn about? The firstborn were given the inheritance rights. So Jesus has the inheritance rights. He sacrifices himself so you and I can be fellow heirs with him. That's the idea. Yes, Eric. Huh. Yeah, I was just going to think, uh, you know, the old covenants who were there in Sinai. I was thinking there's, there's also, you know, the same, I don't know, foreshadowing of the new covenant in the same paragraph. I know it says that when Israel, they looked at the mountain at some point and said, you know, you, you talk with God. We can't or he'll, you'll know, he'll just destroy us. And God actually was pleased by that, which shows, yeah. you know, we can't get to him by any works because he said, you know, do these works. And then on the other hand, the new covenant is also shadowed there because Moses, you know, he, he's, he's also trembling with fear and he goes up to the mountain and his knees are knocking. But you can see in Moses' life this relationship with God to the point of he asks an incredibly bold thing where he says, I, I would like to see your full, you know, glory. And, yeah. and it's like, so that's like the new covenant. Like we have this relationship with God Almighty where it's like, God, I want to see more and more. Like I want to see your fullness. And so there's both. Well said, Eric, very well said. Um, and just to add to that, there's an implied lesser to greater. If those who came to Mount Sinai feared, and if those who fell at Mount Sinai incurred a terrible judgment, which they certainly did, how much greater is the judgment that will be incurred upon us? Um, you know, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So it's even worse to apostatize if you've come to the new heavenly Jerusalem and you've come to Christ, it's far more fearful to apostatize from that than it was even at Sinai. That's one of the arguments that's being made as, as well. And so we see that the new covenant in every way is more glorious. Why? Because the new mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, is so much greater than Moses. Everything about his ministry is greater. Um, so, yeah, it's very good, very excellent themes and good to pick up on that. Now, one thing I want to point out, though, this, um, I talked about this firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Think about the pagan deities in the Old Testament. In order to garner favor with the false gods, like Moloch, this evil god that asked them to sacrifice their children, what child in particular needed to be sacrificed in order to garner favor with the false god, like Moloch? It was their firstborn. It was their firstborn. The ones with the inheritance rights. So God comes on the scene of history and he doesn't require the firstborn of children of human beings. He sends his son and he sacrifices him. So God sacrifices his own firstborn so that you and I can be the firstborn that have all of the inheritance rights in heaven. That's the difference between our God and every other religion. Every other religion will have some sort of work, some sort of sacrifice but our God sacrifices himself so that you and I are firstborn. Now, one interesting thing, talking about conversion, notice this phrase here, but you have come. I already talked about the strong contrast of conjunction, but notice this phrase, you have come. That is a perfect, it's a perfect tense verb. It's a form of, uh, is it erkamai? Yeah, it's pros erkamai. And it's a perfect active indicative of that. So let me try to explain what this means. 
A perfect tense verb often has to do with an action that's completed in the past. And because it's completed, it's regarded as perfect. But the emphasis of the perfect tense is always on the ongoing implications of that event. So let me unpack the significance of that. What that means then, grammatically, is the writer of Hebrews is saying that you have come once and for all to Mount Zion would be the idea. In other words, the effect of your conversion at the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you have come to the position where you have a residence in Mount Zion, and that, that act is always with you. It'll never go away. It's always present because of that once and for all act of trusting in Jesus Christ. So you're, the benefit of you going to the new Jerusalem is always with you. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, all of these things are true, and they will never depart unto eternity. It's always with you. That's the force, I think, of the perfect tense, the implications that these things are always ongoing in the present for you. Okay, so again, what's the big idea that I want to convey here regarding Revelation is that this heavenly Jerusalem really does exist. So when we see that it's coming down out of heaven, and we see that the patriarchs longed for it, and we're looking for it, I think it's fair to say that, yes, this city does exist now. It's the one that Jesus has been working on, that he prepares a place for us. And then when it comes down, just like a little boy who gets a bike that's sitting in the closet of his parents, you and I are going to be shown something spectacular. That's the nature, I think, of this heavenly Jerusalem. It exists now, but it's going to be brand new us. Now, one of the great benefits, of course, in the New Jerusalem is the fact that God tabernacles with his people. The idea of God tabernacling or dwelling with his people was something that was eroded and something that was uh, taken away, as it were, after sin in the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve, where are they kicked out of? They're kicked out of the garden so they don't have the, the presence of God. So this is all going to be reversed to the greatest extent in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we see here. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. John continues the vision. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, first thing I want to point out here in this text, notice here in verse 3 you have a loud voice from the throne. I think this is probably an angel. And the reason I say that is we know that the voice emanates from the throne, which is where God is. But God in the very next verse, as we will see in verse 5, is explicitly named as the one sitting on the throne and in his voice comes out. So I think here, because it's not explicit, this may still be an angel. But very neat in the very next verse, verse 5, it's explicit that the Father is speaking. Okay, so this is probably an angel. Now, notice the claim is that the tabernacle of God is among men. Let's remember that all the way back in the Old Testament, God asked the people of Israel to construct a tabernacle. And remember, it was to be made of a pattern that he had shown to Moses. Well, I think very likely that this is a pattern that of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly temple, as it were, which 
God will ultimately be our temple. But he's showing them a pattern of something that existed. And we see evidence of that in Exodus chapter 25. In fact, if we could get a couple of readers, or maybe one reader that could read Exodus 25, 9 and Exodus 25, 40. If we could get some. Peter oh, yeah. Here. Peter, thank you. Exodus 25, 9. We'll turn our Bibles there. And what I want you to see is here God is giving instructions of the earthly tabernacle. But, again, the, the model, I think, is that of the heavenly one. It's the one that God is showing him. Exodus 25, 9. Exodus 25, 9. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishing, just so you shall make it. Yeah, so he's to make it in the exact manner is the point, is that which has shown him. Now, I'm sorry, keep reading. Um, if you go to verse 40, Peter, very good. Go to verse 40, and then you'll see the same idea. I just want to reinforce that. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Okay, so yeah, that would be all of the construction, all the items concerning this tabernacle was given to Moses after this pattern shown to him on the mountain. Okay, now it's very interesting in the book of Revelation, Revelation 15, 5, it says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. So you see that there really is this temple of tabernacle that's opened in heaven. Okay, now what's very interesting is the ultimate fulfillment of God tabernacling. He did so in the wilderness with his people. Why? Because what was taken away at the garden, he's going to bring back. But it was never complete in the wilderness. Why? Because the people of Israel sinned. They sinned. And then you have Jesus Christ who comes. John 1.14. He comes in the new covenant. God sends forth his son. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The term dwelt there. Literally, he tented with us. He tabernacled with us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But still there was sin and rebellion. And so what's being promised in the New Jerusalem is that when God finally tabernacles with us, there will be no more sin that will be gotten away with. There will be perfect, uh, a perfect relationship between us and God. Yes, go ahead, Christy. Oh, I just wanted to point out that today is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, there you go. Yes. Amen. Free it, coffee. Beautiful. Free Thank coffee. you for pointing that out. Yes, I, I'm often clueless. I don't even know when my, my own birthday is hardly, but very good. Now, that's very good. Um, so think about the Feast of Tabernacles. That's one that is yet to be fulfilled, I believe, in the second advent of Jesus Christ. So think of Jesus, remember in, in or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites had to select a lamb without blemish on the 10th day of Nisan. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on what day? I believe it's the 10th day of Nisan. What he's saying to them is, choose me, I'm the unblemished lamb. On the 14th day, According to Exodus chapter 12, what were they to do with the lamb? Well, on the 14th day of Nisan, they're to slay the lamb. And they're to apply, apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home. Jesus slain on Friday the 14th. He's the Passover lamb. The idea is if we will trust in him, metaphorically, we're applying the blood of him to the doorpost of our heart. And therefore, we're passed over from judgment. So Jesus is on the ground. He's buried on the 14th. So any day is part of a is reckoned as a full day according to the Jews. That's day one. Day two was the 15th day of Nisan. That was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Very significant feast. Why? Because of the imagery. 
You have the bread of life, Jesus. He comes from Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And he's in the ground during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus himself said, unless a kernel of wheat die into the ground, how can it bring forth life? But he says, if it does die, it'll bring a great harvest. It'll bring great life. So he's deposited into the ground like this kernel of wheat. And he's raised not just on any day, but on the 16th day of Nisan, the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, the significance of the Feast of Firstfruits can be seen in Leviticus 23, where God, for hundreds of years, had asked the Israelites to take the first fruits of their harvest, and they would put it on a sheet. And what they would do is they would wave it in front of the Lord, and the image would be, there's never a prayer that's recorded, but it'd be something like this. They would say something like, Lord, um, heaven of earth, you know, king of abundance, we trust you, Lord. We, we, or they probably thank him. They would thank you, Lord, that we have this much of the harvest, but we trust you that one day the rest is going to come. So the image then, of course, because Jesus raised on that, he is the first fruits offering. Meaning, Lord, we have this much, Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. We trust you one day the rest of the harvest is going to come. So Jesus fulfills all of these feasts, but conspicuously he, he fulfills Pentecost in a sense. Remember at Pentecost when he sends the Spirit. Uh, the first Pentecost, the giving of the law, 3,000 die. We see in Acts chapter 2, how many come to life at the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost? 3,000. Okay, so in a sense he even fulfills that, but the one f- feast that he's never fulfilled is the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because it awaits his, his second coming. He will really dwell with his people. And so that we see ultimately in its glor- most glorious form with the new Jerusalem. He really will tabernacle. Yes, Eric, you know, thank I you just, for bringing that up, Chris. As you go through this, it's, it's just fascinating because I think of two things. Um, you know, it's in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about, you know, now we see only as dimly as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face, you know, First that whole 13, thing. Exactly. And that, that yes. kind of ties in with all of this that we're talking about. And then the other thing, I know it's in the Bible somewhere. You see, that's where amateurs like no, us. No, no, no. It's in the Bible somewhere. The, the, uh, I think Bob pointed it out, you know, that Jesus said, listen to me. You know, the idea yeah. of carefully, carefully listening. Yeah. And, and that would mean really studying God's Word and, 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 and learning, you know, carefully looking at God's Word. And that's, yeah. you've just laid out a whole lot of, of how the Bible, it, things tie together so yeah. well Amen. if we just pay attention, you know? Right. It's, it's really clear. Very well said. You know, um, you talk about the term listen. It's, it's kind of like what God says in the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That idea of hearing isn't just hearing sound waves, but hearing the significance of it and believing. And um, you're right, Jesus talks about that in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. Yes, Bob. Yeah, maybe you were thinking about transfiguration. Oh, yeah, listen to him. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, because it says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 35, then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And you're right, Eric, uh, to listen has a stronger connotation than to merely hear sound waves bouncing on eardrums. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, and we use it the same way now. Yeah. If, if a child is told something and they don't pay attention to go do something else, yeah. we say, you're not listening to me. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right, So right. when... Israel was given direct 
infallible revelation from God himself. To listen means to take it, take it to heart for what it is and who it came from. God who cannot lie, the creator of the universe, and then to live accordingly. Yeah. So if we don't listen to Jesus Christ, we're rebelling against God the Father. And Jesus, of course, is God the Son. Amen. Wow, well said. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, very good. This idea of listening is so important. And yeah, in here, this idea that one day we will be those who no longer sin against our God, we'll be those who are characterized by obedience, and that'll be all removed. So we really will tabernacle with them. Now, one thing I want to point out is notice this phrase, they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. I want you to see this as a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you guys will know this phrase. You see it over and over. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is first given in Genesis 17 in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. So let's just think conceptually of what Genesis represents. You have this rebellion where the flood comes, and it gets rid of all people except Noah and his family. Noah and his family bring forth a new humanity, as it were. But even they start rebelling. So much so that it leads to the Tower of Babel. They end up rebelling against God. And this we see in Genesis chapter 11. Well, what happens in Genesis 12 is God starts over with a new humanity, so to speak, through Abraham. And so Abraham, remember God says in you, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. So he's going to start a new humanity that is going to, in fact, be with God. And God will be their God and they shall be his people. So that's what we have to see. We see that Adam and Eve, no, that fails. We have the, the flood. No, there's more failure at the Tower of Babel, Abraham. And all of a sudden, if, you're, if you think about Genesis, when you go from chapter 1 all the way to 11, you're covering hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, just at a, you, turn, you turn a page, you go, it's hundreds of years just went by. But all of a sudden you get to Abraham and time slows down. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, I won't get silly. I get, I get kind of goofy. There was a, there was a, do you guys ever like the movie Get Smart or remember those shows? There was a time where Get Smart, he was in a fist fight and they got shot with tranquilizer guns. So the whole fist fight was in slow motion. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just got a kick out of that. So that was the image I had in my mind. <laughs> sorry, I'll get rid of the silliness here. But all of a sudden you get to Abraham and the time slows way down. Why? Because it's through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the descendants of Jacob, which remember Jacob's renamed Israel, that you're going to have this new humanity, the humanity that's one day going to tabernacle with God. Why? Because through faith in Christ, we were grafted in. We were grafted into their promises too. So that's why you have the, the structure of Genesis the way you have it. So, okay, now let me have us turn to some passages here. And very interesting. Um, Peter, do you still have your Exodus 25 open? I'm sorry. Um, just the reason why is I want you to see that this, this desire of God... And you can turn to Exodus 25, 8, was that he would dwell with his people. Again, this dwelling with his people was thwarted in some sense by the sin in the garden. So you see this in the, when God pursues his people in the wilderness here. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Ah, so they're going to make him a sanctuary that what? That he may dwell among them. Now, 
Hold on to that idea. Write this passage down. Read it tonight. Promise me you'll... Well, don't promise me. Just make your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be, but okay. Write down 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 14. And you have to read to the end of the chapter. But what's very interesting, in the Davidic covenant, do you remember... David promises God that he's going to make him a temple. He's going to make him a sanctuary. So he's following in the same pattern of Exodus 25, 8. God says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. So that what was thwarted by sin in the garden is going to be, it's going to be undone. God is going to overcome it. But what's very interesting is when David says, I will make you a temple, I'm going to make you a sanctuary. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to make you a sanctuary. So David becomes this picture then of those who by grace belong to the Messiah. And it's not that you and I, like in the old covenant, make him a tabernacle. He's going to make us a tabernacle. And ultimately that's what you're seeing here in Revelation chapter 21. The promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 that yes, God makes for us a tabernacle, not the other way around. Again, all mankind in false religion is trying to build Babylon. God, through his grace, through his power, through his work alone, gives us the new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Okay, now, let me keep rolling here. Notice the promises here. I love these promises. Whoops, let me try to get rid of my pointer. Notice in verse 4, he's going to wipe away... Every tear from the eyes, there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that this is an allusion back to Isaiah 25.8. Just jot that down. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 25.8, the great promise. Remember, that's in that eschatological passage about the future day of the Lord. God said in Isaiah 25.8, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, some people have concluded by this phrase, he'll wipe away every tear, that somehow there's tears still in heaven or up until that point. I think that may be trying to be too clever by half. I think the whole point and the intention of John is to simply say, there'll no longer be any reason to cry. God is going to get rid of it. So just as you and I had a lot of things, and we we continue will we will have a lot of things to weep over in this life. That's all going to be gotten rid of in the new heavens, the new, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It's beautiful. No longer will we have reasons to whine. Now, what's very interesting is in Revelation 18, just jot these passages down. Revelation 18, 7, when Babylon was established by the pagans in the 70th week of Daniel, they end up being given over to mourning into crying, everything that's taken away from us. In other words, we have no more crying, no more death, no more mourning. That is given to Babylon. They are going to mourn. Let me read Revelation 18, 7. It says, to the degree that she glorified herself, this is Babylon, and lived sensually to the same degree, I give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. Four verses later, it says, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. Babylon, if you're living for the city that's built by man, all you're going to have is death, mourning, weeping, pain. It doesn't end well. 
And there's, I think, a lesson for all of us in sin. Do you know that here and now we can say sometimes sin is pleasurable? But you know what always leads to pain, mourning, death? That's what it leads to. But when you live for God and his promises... It always leads to what this is. That's why Bob, again, for years and years, he's been teaching the church, believe the promises of God. If we believe these things are true, we will live for the king and the kingdom. But when we start to falter, when we say, you know what, I don't know if these things are really going to come about, then we start to get all we can here and now. And that's really when sin creeps in. I say, I don't know if I can really believe that that good thing is going to come that God has promised. I'm going to get all I can here and now. And that's how faith and obedience are tied hand in hand. If you really believe God and his promises, you live like it. You forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin that so easily entangle us here for the glorious nature of the kingdom in this city of God later. That's, I think, a very powerful application to what we're reading. Yes, Eric. Yeah, and I've been thinking about... Also, like God's goodness here, I know it was David that said, if I didn't believe I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, I would have despaired. Because often it's, you know, it's like Paul says, we're, we're pretty much dying to ourselves. We're not seeking the glory of man, we're seeking the glory of God. And, and that hurts sometimes. But, oh, sorry, I lost my thoughts. <laughs> no, it's well said. I, I like what you shared there. A- excellent. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of pain and sorrow in this life, Jesus promises in this life you'll have trials and tribulations, but take heed, I have overcome the world. Uh, one thing we want to think about, too, is when I talk about the church being raptured prior to the tribulation, I'll often hear people say, well, wait a minute, hasn't the church been promised tribulation? Yes, but in the 70th week of Daniel, there's a reversal. And you see this, for example, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where God promises, he says through Paul, Isn't it only fair that God will afflict those who have afflicted you? The term afflict there comes from the term thalipsis, where we get our term tribulation. So what happens in the 70th week of Daniel, there's a great reversal. You and I were afflicted by the world. God's going to reverse that. He's going to afflict them. We were put in trials and tribulations. He's going to get rid of that. He's going to put them in trials and tribulations, and you're going to be spared. And that's the great promise we see, for example, in Revelation 3.10, where he says, because you've kept my word... I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Remember that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, used eight times in Revelation. Every time it refers strictly to the unregenerate. Now, again, that promise culminates in what we see here in the New Jerusalem. So I know we're out of time. We've got much more to cover, but Bob is going to be back with us. I want to thank Bob for, he's doing the sermon, the heavy lift today, because I had a family obligation But Bob is going to be back in Acts, correct, next week? Yes. So we'll be back in Acts, and we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 10 today. So, excellent. So, thanks, everyone, for uh, your thoughtful comments, and let's just bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. I do pray, Lord, that in the months and years that we have left in our earthly lives, that we would be people who forsake the sins that so easily entangle us and live for these great truths, live for these great promises. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would put the new Jerusalem in our hearts and minds, just as you did to Abraham. I pray, Lord, you would give us his faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.